Welcome to Private Practice Podcast. I am James Hall. And I'm Daniel P. Brown. Is there anything that I just said that you disagree with? No, James. Excellent. I mean, there's there nothing to disagree with there. <laughs> Jolly good. Uh, just, <laughs> just, 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 just for the benefit of the listener, this is the second time we started this podcast because apparently the first time I said something or other or other and then stopped and then accused Dan of looking like he was uh, distressed by something. So he had a really uh, good old rant, which I might put at the end of this podcast and got that all out of his system. So now we're ready to start a new series of private practice podcasts and I think a very different type of podcast previously. I definitely feel a lot calmer from my previous five months in France. We did record four episodes for the series that we're doing at the moment and I've listened back to them recently and you you won't have heard these since we've recorded them but I think they're completely uh, almost I find them almost impossible to listen to I hear myself banging on your drum kit shouting bouncing around and I just find myself incredibly unpleasant to listen to Wait, so are you telling me that you're not going to release those podcasts? Is that what's being said here? Because that that would irritate me and, and you would be seeing a, a moody face. And no, it's Thumbs fine. down emoji. But yeah, you are really irritating walking into my private practice and banging on my drum kit, which wouldn't be there in a private practice. That's that, you know, seriously breaking all walls, not just the fourth wall. So also for the benefit of any new listeners... Or James, was it the third wall? Remind me again, is it the fourth wall? <laughs> fourth wall has come down now to be fair i moved out of the private practice i'm now into my actual home and some details that i think are quite uh, relevant for any new listeners or returning listeners that may who may not realize that uh, since we started recording this podcast i just left london and came to france and i've been here now for about five months and so I am currently in Montpellier in the south of France and Dan is in a non-specified location in London. Yep, non-specified, somewhere between Croydon and somewhere else. I can specifically say that I'm at 16 Rue Julien in Montpellier, which is uh, postcode 34000 because by the time this goes out, I won't be here anymore. So you can't uh, hunt me down because if you come here, you'll find the subsequent people who've rented this Airbnb. And um, sorry, did I, did, I, did I go off on a tangent there? One of the things that we're definitely not going to do in the new series of private practice is go off on tangents. Yep, that was one of your rules, wasn't it? No tangents. <laughs> I think we should make lots of rules that we don't break ever. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a really good idea. Rules are there to not be broken. But listen, one of the things that I think is funniest, which the listener couldn't possibly know, is previous to our... Uh, failed first attempt at starting this very podcast that we're currently recording previously to this you had said let me do a concise succinct introduction to explain to any new listener that it was a new podcast and I think we're probably somewhere like seven minutes into recording (laughs) 
and and no such thing has taken place. There is no, there is, there's no. Hello, welcome to Private Practice Podcast, the podcast for you and me and the listener to talk about mental health and try and think a little bit about the psychology, having a look at therapy, and perhaps exploring some of the more uh, easily accessible ideas of psychoanalysis, cognitive therapy, psychology, in a very, very much layman's terms. Having a bit of a giggle about trying to understand it from our own perspective and our own experiences. You haven't said anything like that. Yeah, but it's fine. You've just said that now. I don't need to establish that. That's good. Uh, we know that I'm in France, you're in London, and uh, it's for us currently it's January 2019, series four. Yep, you said that. You've def- yep, you said that. I think you said that like three times. So all of that has now been established. One thing I would also like to say is that just before we started recording, I um, pointed out to Dan that on my table at the moment I've got a bottle of red wine, some uh, French blackberry jam, which I very much like, and I'm currently using a piece of 12 month matured Comte cheese as a bookmark in uh, the book. It's got cellophane around it, so it's not making the pages all greasy. But the book in which I'm marking pages with cheese is called Ideas in Psychoanalysis. That's the series title. And the the title of the book is Paranoia. And it's written by David Bell. And it's one of the best introductions to a subject I think I've ever read. I found it very interesting. I presume... Daniel P. Brown of the Private Practice Podcast. You Have you read this book before or was it just on your shelf to make you look clever? No, I read the whole series before, so um, <laughs> I don't think a book could make me look clever. Too <laughs> Although I try, James, I have many books and I hope, I hope. Um, yeah, I've read it at some point. I, I'm not going to lie to you, I can't remember like the contents, but um, you know, I've worked a little bit in mental health over the last 20 years, so... I've come into contact with paranoia. And of course, we all have personal experiences of paranoia. So um, yeah, remind me, talk us through it, introduce the topic. Let's get on with this podcast. Here we go. So the subject of today is paranoia. And I've got a quote from the author of the book. And I'm going to read it now. There is for all of us something extraordinarily difficult in recognising the existence of a world around us that is entirely indifferent to our fate. And thus, paranoid states offer a kind of compensation if you're paranoid, you're never alone. And having read the book, that's a really, uh, that, that quote stands out as a sort of summary. But if I were to have read that quote without reading the book, it wouldn't make any sense. What do you mean, if you're paranoid, you're never alone? How does there's a logical sequence of steps missing from that? I don't understand. That's how I would have reacted to that quote. So yeah, we can come okay. back to that quote at the end of the podcast and hopefully it will make sense. Okay, well, um, I was just going to say, because I think uh, as I was growing up, there's definitely this idea that if you say anything, you you know, that might sound um, somewhat like someone is having a go at you or someone's getting at you, people would use the phrase, oh, you're paranoid, aren't you? You're paranoid, mate. Shut the fuck up. You're paranoid. And I think I think the word paranoia is used like quite loosely uh, just to mean um, uh, exactly that. Someone thinks that someone's you know, having a go at them or criticising them or getting on their back or getting on their case. So there's a kind of a, like a, a urban dictionary style use of the word, isn't that? Um, I've never really, I've never really used the word properly at all. I never had any interest in the subject before reading this book, never really thought about it. And uh, from my own experience of my preconceptions of the idea of it and using those to guess that other people might think the same way, I think that the idea of paranoia is of a personality that you either own or don't own 
Um, and that's parallel to anxiety. So at some point I would have said, oh, I'm not an anxious person. I'm not a paranoid person. I, could, I don't really know any anxious, paranoid people. Maybe I do, but that's their personality. That belongs to them. I don't identify with that. It's just some vague abstract thing and I don't think about it. It's nothing to do with me. Oh, see, because I think probably for the vast majority of my adult life and potentially my teenage years, I would have considered there was a strong element of um, uh, paranoia or anxiety in my thinking. Um, you know, the very classic one that I think everyone has is, you know, people don't like me. They don't like me. Those people don't like me. Like, people would hold reasons to not like you. Like, they would bother with thinking about you, you know? Uh, so I think, for me... Uh, Paranoia, although perhaps not being used in the uh, correct technical term that you're going to teach us all about today, I'm sure, James. <laughs> um, paranoia is a word, you know, and also, you know, people who take drugs, people who smoke, uh, people who, um, I don't know, perhaps are on the more fringe side of life as I was growing up, would have considered that like paranoia is something that could be induced and brought brought on, and then you would be in a state of that, and then what you thought and what you were doing wasn't you know, right, it didn't fit with reality. It was you were thinking something incorrect. You were thinking something that was wrong or messy or untoward about other people towards yourself. Does that make sense to you? Yes. It's just that I think from your point of view, you're more or you've always been more aware of these words because you have a medical background. This is probably another thing that we could point out to any new listeners. I do not have any kind of background in psychoanalysis medicine or anything like that whereas you do yeah yeah i'm a qualified registered uh, mental health nurse so all these words are things that this is another reason why we're kind of changing the way we do these podcasts away from me giggling making jokes about fudge and talking about myself because in the last year since we finished it's, it's a year since we finished recording the first series and in that time uh, I've borrowed various books from you and read them and got more and more interested in these subjects so the idea of paranoia is completely different to me now than it used to be same goes for anxiety so I can't really answer that question from when I was younger looking back because I didn't really know what these things were I didn't really understand anything. and and I think and I think you know the uh, the listener if there were if there were two listeners uh, <laughs> one, one of them may well have understood it as they were growing up or as an adult and the other would only have heard about it in you know popular culture references or someone else talking about it and have like you no understanding or no awareness or no experience of it we need to be very sensitive and careful not to make the listener feel insecure and anxious about the idea that there's another one and that our affection is shared between a sort of like a sibling rivalry so just, you, don't worry you are the listener maybe there's two people listening together <laughs> um so this uh the, the whole idea of paranoia as far as i understand it and if any time i talk rubbish please step in with your superiority i would like nothing more because um one thing one thing i can um one thing i can get onto maybe a bit later is the well, one major change i feel that moving to france has done to me in giving me a lot of time to just be far more tranquil and less frenzied is making me far more happy to um just sit back and accept my flaws, my vulnerability, my nonsense mm. and all that sort of thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I, the last thing I want to do is preach. Uh, the last thing I want to do is sit here and say, I, on my lofty plateau, have learned all about paranoia and I'm teaching it unto thou. Good. <laughs> you will be <Good>. enriched. <laughs> Hopefully you will be enriched, but it's more that we are talking about the idea together as an interesting thing that is relevant to people as opposed to, I have learnt about this thing and I wish to bestow my grandiosity upon thou. So my understanding is that it comes from anxiety and everyone suffers from anxiety. That's another, that's, you could say, what I said earlier about paranoia, you could say exactly the same thing about anxiety as paranoia. I would have previously thought anxiety is someone else's personality. It's not relevant to me. I'm not an anxious... You're, you're either an anxious person or you're not. I identify with not... And I think that that is absolute rubbish. Yeah, it's pure nonsense, James. I think we've all got... I mean, even like being self-conscious or, uh, you know, socially awkward or uh, having phobias or or being obsessed with certain things, you know, these are all like elements of anxiety and I think everyone suffers it in one way or another. And there are two types of anxiety, which are threats in the outside world... And recognition of our own flaws within, which are supposedly intolerable to the ego. What, your flaws are intolerable to your ego? Well, the idea that I am vulnerable, I am mortal, I am wrong sometimes, I make people dislike me. Um, Sometimes I try to be funny and it's not funny and it's inappropriate and it upsets people. Sometimes I'm not empathetic and I plough through life, leaving behind debris and destruction and I and I, therefore I am a flawed vulnerable dependent individual you are imperfect I'm imperfect but as as a human who has an ego I can't survive on the basis of just accepting that I am a dependent flawed mortal ultimately pointless useless individual because what how would I go about my daily business if I did that so the oh, the blimey. <laughs> the um the first type of anxiety, threats in the outside world, like you, you being a threat to me. In what way? You being the one that everyone likes on this podcast, the relatable one, the empathetic one, the funny one, the friendly one, and me being the awful one. Uh, you're therefore a threat in the outside world to me. And I can either tackle that by, <laughs> by trying to make myself as wonderful as you are, or I can run away and I can, uh, I can uh, escape and launch the James Hall podcast and just be in total denial that any podcast would ever be better than the James Hall podcast. So yeah, ob- interesting. Okay, okay. So obviously I'm, uh, it's, I'm going for the first option. S- sorry, you've confused me there. You what? I'm recognising that, uh, that, I, that I have flaws, yes. And 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 what does this mean to the listener? Like, yeah, so you, James Hall, are recognising you have flaws to stop yourself being living in a in a in a what? Why? Well, I think I've, I've got an example for later on about my childhood, but I don't really want to talk about that right now without fully kind of immersing the listener in the world of James Hall. No, 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 without fully immersing the listener in the contents of this book about paranoia. 
So there are two, so it starts with on the basis of anxiety. There are, there's anxiety in the, the much better example of anxiety in the outside world is um, originally before we lived in our modern society when we were hunter gatherers. There might be a lion out there who's going to kill you. So you're anxious about going out into the world because you might die, and therefore you're aware of your mortality and you're aware of your weakness compared with the lion out in the wild. Okay, yeah, so it's kind of a kind of a primal sort of fear of death. Yeah, and, and then being an, a, an internal and being attacked. Yeah. And an internal yeah. anxiety might be that you're a weak uh person who's not able to go out and kill animals and provide food for your family and other families will thrive because they've got stronger tribe members than yourself and you think and they're better at clubbing animals to death. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're just a flouncy, mincing, local, I don't know, singer, songwriter, poet, or I don't know, Absolutely, absolutely. You write the village newspaper or something. And that's a vitally important contribution to society. But unfortunately, at this point, society has not developed to have... uh, those kinds of roles so and and no one can read so yeah exactly ultimately your newspaper is pointless and as someone who has traded in graphic design up until now i wouldn't really have been able to make much of a living like that as a in a hunter-gatherer situation also you're you're very very thin and very very weak and you're very very tall so like lions and tigers and bears would be able to see you from miles away (laughs) Also, I reckon your energy levels are relatively low. So after, I don't know, maybe 100 yards, you're probably like too tired to, to actually run away. And also, you even trying to lift up a club to batter to death a wild animal would be just laughable, right? All, all of that, all of the above. But you're, uh, actually, you're actually looking quite anxious now. <laughs> are you actually, are you, James, I'm just going to let you know, there are no wild lions in uh, Montpellier. That I'm aware of. Uh, but from all of that, from all of that, do you feel like the t- the, what I've said about the two different types of anxiety from without and from within, does that make sense? Because it makes sense to me. Internal and external causes for anxiety. Yeah, of course. Part of it is about yourself and part of it is about potential threats that are out there. And you can use the example of um, hunter-gatherers and lions as a sort of like looking back as to how this has always been relevant. But if you think about a modern day example, a threat from without is that you see on social media everyone else is living a perfect life and you're not. Absolutely. And so from that you can either live in isolation and depression and feel weak and insecure or you can fight it and try and compete with everyone else and live an even more perfect life than everyone else and you can do all the things that you think are going to make yourself acceptable on social media. And I guess there's the third option, which is accepting your flaws, which is what you started off with. So you're talking about in the modern world, and a really good one, I guess, would be talking about weight nowadays. I mean, 10 years ago or or 15 years ago when I started working in eating disorders, it really did seem like the the weight issue and the fat issue was, was generally just for women and was generally based for people who were becoming obsessed with it it was an illness in itself but now if you're looking at social media the idea of the perfect body the toned body the abs the sculpted body slimness um perfection the right size bum the right kind of arms the right kind of pecs legs for men and women is so absolutely um standard that i would have thought that the majority of people without confronting 
their own body image and thinking about accepting flaws, which are completely normal and completely human and shouldn't really be even considered flaws, um, but flaws away from this idea of perfection, this image of perfection. It's so normal that I would be very surprised if there were very many people who were growing up now who didn't have anxiety about their body. Whereas that's new, that's like a, that's a modern sickness. That's And I'm not fully blaming, like, you know, the Instagram generation or or social media, but that definitely extends this problem. And I think that's a very, very good example and a very solid, very tangible example of uh, external and internal anxieties working together to create a sense of unease and and fear and discomfort and self-consciousness and unhappiness because ultimately what we're talking about James is this sort of lofty concept of paranoia uh, but we also want to make it relatable so this idea how do you how do you feel about rolling with this because you've explained the internal and external you've introduced the concept of paranoia but actually it's got to be useful well, yeah, I, I also think that from what you've just said about um, weight loss and things, it's not just something for teenagers. It's not it's kind of 18-year-olds who are on the verge of anorexia and self-harm because they spend their whole lives on Instagram and think that they're not as perfect. It's, it's, uh, it's any generation, any age. You can look back, for example, at the introduction of the camera and you can look at people looking really awkward in sepia photos because they didn't know how to hold themselves and and things like that it's not it's not something that's just suddenly arrived in the world as uh tina dan is currently modeling a kind of is that a sort of like an egyptian god pose oh i was doing i'm a little teapot but you can't oh, okay. yeah it is a bit like an egyptian god thanks <laughs> so um there's yeah this... but what what i'm saying is it's such a modern it's such a modern um it's so easily accessible. So, for example, if you're talking about when the camera first came in, the vast majority of the planet weren't having photos taken of them, you know? Yeah. Um, they wouldn't have then, um, in in my mind, just completely obsessed over it continuously. Nowadays, it's, it, it's completely on our fingertips. People are on their phones, you know, 18 hours a day almost, you know? Even at work, people like you struggle to get off their phones and looking at all the updates and, and, and that. There's so much about looking good and living, being your best self. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's, just, it's just an accessible example, is what I'm saying. And I, these are, these are uh, just a few examples of anxiety. Again, I keep wanting to bring it back to the fact that if... You're, like for example, if you think, oh, I'm not the kind of person who's jealous of people on Instagram, I can't relate to that at all. <laughs> the, the idea, if the idea seems completely abstract and you think of that as being a totally other type of person, kind of like a young teenager who is nothing like you, that's not to say that you don't have anxiety and you're not susceptible to paranoia. So these are those... It's, they're easy examples that we've used with teenagers on Instagram and hunter-gatherers faced with lions to demonstrate forms of anxiety. But when, when the anxiety is identified, the, the, theme, the idea presented in this book is that paranoia is the mind coping by projecting the problem externally. Just pausing there because... Uh, yeah. That was, that was some heavy stuff that I've just dumped on the table. Yeah, you you just made it real, James. So when the mind identifies the anxiety from within, it copes by projecting the problem externally. Uh, that's a 
theory of Freud from the late 1800s, which is therefore relatively recent. Because if you think about lots of the ideas, I mean, like religions, um, Mm -hmm. you think they go back thousands of years. The idea of paranoia only goes back 119 years-ish. Okay. In fact, less than that. Let's call it 100 years. Okay, so 100 years of paranoia. (laughs) But obviously paranoia has existed before that. It's just that these people have... All the stuff that's written about paranoia is within the last 100 years since it was a a theory that Freud wrote about. So it's rather than it being a real tangible thing, it's an explanation of behaviours and it's an explanation of thinking patterns and it's an explanation... A theory of... A theory of this. A theory of something that has become learnt. So it's not an inevitable... Uh, it's not an inevitable state of mind. It's that, uh, according to the research and of people like Freud, the human mind has adapted to cope with anxiety by creating the concept of paranoia. So if you're anxious about your own flaws, the fact that you're vulnerable, the fact that you're not perfect in whatever way, the fact that you have problems that, with which you struggle... Um, this mental state has been developed whereby without you actively doing this, your mind automatically projects that externally. So I've got there are some examples in the book because that's very abstract and it's easy to think, what the hell is he talking about? So um, an example of projection where your mind has automatically taken your problem and put it in the external world for you to look at, which is ultimately what paranoia is, I've written out a, a, an example. So an example of projection. This is my uh, internal voice as a series of logical thoughts that I wouldn't actually necessarily lay out like this, but this is this, I'm simplifying maybe a lifetime of thoughts into a logical progression. I have gay impulses. That's impossible because I'm straight and always have been and always will be. Therefore, it must be that I've noticed others with the problem. Uh, Thinking of the man who brushed past me, that must have been no accident. He wanted sexual contact with me. He's a threat and must be defeated to preserve my valued and correct heterosexuality. And I'm saying these words because as this person, in order to feel a sense of identity, I value the things I think about myself. And so from that conclusion that other people must be gay and I see them looking at me and that's why I'm thinking about gayness, I can think, phew, it's not me with the problem after all. I'm still all right. I'm still straight. And uh, there there must be loads of people like that man. And now I believe every man is a potential gay threat. And this is now an extension of it. Uh, This is an extremity. They'd better keep their distance or else there'll be trouble. And so there I am subconsciously developing my own homophobia because the idea that I might be gay is intolerable and that is a natural way of coping with it. So the idea is you might have accidentally become turned on by something like, uh, you know, that is homosexual, that is gay, and then over the coming weeks and months you then start 
transferring it into a different way of thinking and what you do is you you you, you see it externally rather than in, in internally and isn't that just projection though then yeah you're talking about project yeah so yeah. the projection of the idea is external so where does the paranoia itself come in then so it's after it's been after you've projected the idea so summary of everything in that mental state is basically i love him becomes he persecutes me or he's a threat to me I am now justified in hating him. So from that point onwards, you are paranoid that gay men are going to try and... Touch, on, touch your bits. Well, exactly. And that's, you can say it flippantly because that is exactly... That you find lots of homophobic people are just frightened that other gays are going to be T- awful... Touching... Se- yeah, sexual predators. Touching their bits, yeah, yeah. Huh. And so the root of a lot of homophobia is that fear that someone else is going to violate you and that someone else is a pervert and that you have the moral superiority over these perverts that are out there out to threaten your safe heterosexuality and i mean i'm using that example it does that's that's an example to do with sexuality but um it could be that you that you work with people and it's intolerable for you to believe that you're not very good at what you do and that you could improve so all of your flaws, you project them onto other people and you think, actually, no, it's the person I work with who's got all these problems. And, you, and so you have kind of like Friday night in the pub, you've had, finished a week at work and you start to go on about, oh, the guy I work with, he's so like this, he's so like that, he's got all these problems, he does this wrong, he's irritating. And I've got a funny example of an email he sent, I'm just going to read and all that sort of thing. It could be that lots of those are your own problems and you're seeing them in the other person and you're not choosing to do that. It's, and it's, so it's a, it's a defence from exploring your own flaws? Exactly. So, so like a kind of... A, and you're saying that this state, I guess, then, or are we suggesting that this state is kind of accessible to everyone? Because there is that very classic example, because in, in mental health services, you'll see a very extreme version of this, because paranoia... So there's a very you know there's a, like there's a there's a specific type of schizophrenia which is a a severe mental illness which um people suffer with it often leads to hospitalization and often needs medication whereby the the altered mental state whether it's from anxiety or or, or whether it's you know from um some kind of trauma leads to an extreme state of paranoia where reality, where it doesn't have this level of reality that you're talking about at the minute, that isn't. And you're, what we're talking about today is a more common level of paranoia, a more common every man's version of it. That we can we can all be suffering with this to a cert, lesser or certain extent at different times, depending on something that makes us extremely anxious. The way that we deal with extreme anxiety within ourselves, but a normal level of extreme anxiety is by projecting the the fear or the, the the worry or the concern outside of us so it's not us that has a problem which of course we all do we all have flaws i mean um looking at people who think they're perfect would be a really uh, interesting other episode which i think we should do but with this with paranoia that we're talking about today there is an extreme version that would lead to hospitalization and, and something that i'll have seen hundreds of times where reality no longer exists, that actually the entire system is out to get you or to kill you or to read your mind or to take over your life. In fact, they might already have taken over your life. In fact, they might have actually taken over your soul. They might have killed your soul. They might have taken body parts. There's a, 
fantastic book that I've recently read, and a lot of people would have seen the film, um, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by uh, Ken Kesey. And uh, the, the the main character in the, the book, uh, the chief, who's a mixed heritage uh, Native American Indian, is uh, is the is telling the story, and he is in, he is extremely paranoid, and he believes the world is made up of a big system that he is not a part of, that is controlling him and controlling everything else. But he believes it to the extreme that at night the entire hospital turns into a kind of a machine and the machine has cogs and wheels and wires and the wires get inside him and the wires control what he does and they can lift him up and they use this weird controlling gaseous fog to get inside people's brains so there's a very very extreme end of paranoia um and i hope that example was clear because i realized i i was going off on one there but but then the the paranoia that you're talking about is much more subtle it's not something that someone else would necessarily i wouldn't necessarily be able to go well, James, actually, you know what? Like, not, not, or you might not actually be able to say, actually, Dan, not all men are going to beat you up. You know, not all men are going to be aggressive or violent or nasty towards you because of something in myself. I think that, I don't know, uh, I'm not good enough or I'm not strong enough or I'm not man enough or whatever it is. You wouldn't necessarily know to say this to me. This paranoia is very subtle that we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, it has to be, because if it's, uh, if it's a coping mechanism that happens automatically, you can't just be aware of your, uh, your own paranoia unless you go on this process of trying to understand it and thinking about yourself quite a lot. And so you can't just sort of take five minutes after this podcast and think, what's my paranoia? Yeah, got it, fine, okay. <laughs> Yeah, if 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 you're interested in what we're talking about and you want to try and think about yourself and you're not you're perfectly happy to dive into the idea that you might be a totally flawed, vulnerable person who constantly gets things wrong and isn't perfect, then um it takes a long time to think about because it's something that is repressed or it's something that's an automatic thing. It's a it's it's a lazy, passive process that happens. And in order to be more aware and to to act more mindfully about yourself, that requires a demanding active process. So it means you have to stop and think and you have to subject yourself to the fear of confronting your flaws and your weaknesses. Uh, so for me, that you're obviously talking about, well, for me, you're talking about psychotherapy. To me, you're talking about, you know, so people think that you go to therapy simply to get better from something that's wrong with you. And, and I guess that is... One thing, but um, because seeing as we, the book that you're talking about is ideas in psychoanalysis, quick aside then, psychoanalysis is the process whereby you sit with a qualified, well-trained therapist who understands these ideas and helps you explore them depending on what you bring into the room on any week. Um, and, and I think it is really interesting because I do think lots of people would benefit. Because let's talk about that person, actually. Let's talk about that person who every day after, every time they've gone to work and it's Friday and they, they, they sit there moaning and worrying and stressing about um, the other people in the office who don't do things properly or, or how the boss is bullying or how, you know, or how unfair things are. We all know someone who constantly complains about everyone else. That person's irritating, that person's stupid, that person's talks rubbish, that person annoyed me, that person sent another stupid email, that person doesn't do their job properly, etc. That's the, that's the person we're talking about here. It's one of the people we're talking about here. Um, and, but that's not a happy person, is it? That's not a happy person. So, so they're not necessarily depressed because they live in a world where 
the ideas that actually upset them aren't in their conscious mind. And therapy can bring those ideas into the conscious mind rather than uh, therapy helping the person deal with, as it were, the awful, terrible people at work. The capable therapist will enable someone to come up with the ideas that are truly behind that. You know, okay, I'm really not very good at my job and I'm too lazy to get better at my job. That's not a comfortable thing to think. I'm not very good at my job. I'm too lazy to get better at my job. But it might lead a person who's going through therapy to think, hey, I'm in the wrong fucking job. I don't want to do this. This is a shit place to work for me. I don't like being here. I've got no motivation to be here. It's not making me happy. And actually, the other people in the office aren't lazy, stupid or rubbish. I just don't fucking like them, (laughs) you know? Because those ideas are horrible. Imagine if you're like going to work. Okay, I'm rubbish at my job. (laughs) I don't like being here. Um, And actually, some people do have those in their conscious mind, but still carry on. And again, psychotherapy can help with that, you know, making you understand why would you stay in a fucking environment where you're not happy, you don't like what you're doing, you're not very good at it, it's not fulfilling. So like, this is, this is surely, James, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, the idea that we're, the reason why we would be talking about a concept like paranoia to our listener. Yeah, the guy who is sitting in the office and complaining about everyone else is completely different to the more extreme forms of paranoia because people are aware that there are people in mental hospitals taking medication who have a totally paranoid idea of the world and they believe in conspiracies and things and that seems so other that seems so much like a disease that you either have or don't have and most people don't have it and therefore most people are totally fine and don't need to think about paranoia that's just not the case because paranoia is a natural thing that is um, the equilibrium that the brain naturally forms. And it's only in extreme cases that you have someone who is on medication or in a mental institute. Do you want me to drop the next big idea? Do you want me to slam it down on the table with my wine, my baguette and my French blackberry jam that I currently have on the table here? Yeah, absolutely. Slam it down, James. So... From everything that we've said, it probably seems like paranoia is a problem or a a, a deeply unpleasant, painful state of being. But the whole point of paranoia is that it is massively comforting. It restores the equilibrium. It completely annihilates the idea that your anxiety is something that needs to be tackled or understood or controlled the projection of your problems is a form of release they're no longer inside they're outside you can breathe a sigh of relief and you can feel calm so it's a bit of a dichotomy because in that sense of being paranoid you you constantly sense threat you're constantly dissatisfied with other people you're very 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 critical the person who's that we just talked about, who sits in the office and complains about everyone, everyone else is wrong, everyone else is stupid and can't do their job properly. That person in that state of thinking that everyone else has got it wrong and they're the one who's got it right is seemingly in a state... Well, in that that sense, they are absolutely evidently in a state of paranoia. But for them, it's comforting. They can sit there and they can rant about everyone else and get it off their chest and feel at the end of it, oh... I've got that off my chest. All those stupid idiots, I've put them in their place and now I can feel superior and relaxed. So the idea, the the purpose of paranoia is to comfort. It's a defence. Yes, it's a defence against an internal anxiety. But, I mean, there's there's also the idea that there's a paranoid state when it's 
like a conscious paranoid state, like a fear of everything else, a fear of external, like a consciously anxious paranoid state. That that also exists. That's like another element of it, which I would say is is not pleasant. But yeah, the idea is is a defense, I guess, to protect from the truths about yourself that you don't want to confront. And people feel a huge sense of relief at the end of the week when they go to the pub and they slag off everyone that they work with to their friends. <laughs> people don't go to the pub and say, right, I want to consolidate all the things that I've got wrong this week. I think that I've got these problems and I'm going to detail them. They go through everyone else being wrong and everyone else being an idiot and they get it off their chest and they feel better about it and they think that was a great night at the pub. So, so by extension then, when we're you know criticising others, are we doing that to make ourselves feel better about whatever it is that you know we're not good at? Pretty much. According to this book, I'm presenting what is basically outlined in the book and it makes sense to me. Yeah, it makes sense to me too. Another aspect is it's even easier to become paranoid when change occurs and habits or routine become extinct. And so I've always found that learning to adapt to inevitable change in life helps prepare you for coping with anxiety because it's less of a threat when change occurs if you're used to change so if something if you're if you have a very familiar life you've grown up in the same town you've had the same friends and family around you your whole life the most daring thing you've done is you've maybe spent a month in australia and then you went to university and you found yourself and now you're working in an insurance firm um there's an awful <laughs> there's an awful lot yeah yeah you know who you are <laughs> There's an awful lot of familiarity in that and um, there's an awful lot of comfort in the world around you. And so if suddenly something major happens in the world, whether it's personal to you or whether it's relevant to the country or the whole world, uh, that's a major disruption of your equilibrium. Whereas it's easier for me personally to think about these things just from the point of view of growing up where change was constant and inevitable and I was very self-aware when I was younger and so even though I didn't deal with it very well at all at the time I was never afraid of the idea of change and that has persisted to the point where now I'm in France because I just made the decision in my early 30s the age of 31 that I wasn't happy with everything so I just and I wanted to do something different so within one weekend of making that decision I'd got all the plans in place and three weeks later I was in France so the so I wasn't in that sense from my point of view I can embrace change and just do it and not be afraid of it but I'm not that's not go you (laughs) (laughs) yeah so this is the next chapter in this podcast why I'm great (laughs) yeah just so that the listener understands what what James I think is saying is that he doesn't get paranoid because he doesn't need to get paranoid. There's, n- there's nothing there to to trigger or bring about the paranoia because he just is great. Yeah. Well, no, I've got one example from current affairs. Because I'm going to come back. I've just been flippant about myself. I'm rest assured that I intend to end this podcast being very critical about myself. I do hope so. Um, so we'll come back. We'll come back to me. But I just I don't want everything to be about me anymore. 
there are other things in the world to think about besides James Hall. So if you think of the the big things that have been relevant, certainly to English-speaking Western people in the past few years, Brexit and Donald Trump... Oh, Trumpy, yeah. They are potentially examples of nationalised paranoia because they are perceived as by some people as catastrophes that are going to ruin the world. So I'm the helpless victim and everyone is a potential Brexit or Trump voting threat out to get me. My previous secure normality has gone and now I don't know what to think anymore. I must be defensive against the evil in society in order to survive. That's a paranoid state that is shared by huge groups of people. And often those thoughts come from polite middle-class neoliberals who find it abhorrent and impossible to acknowledge that they too might have flaws just like someone like Donald Trump. And instead of recognising the feelings that they have and letting them exist, there's the paranoid denial whereby they assume that they don't have them and it's others that have problems and how dare one of them be allowed to be the most powerful person in the world. And lots of people find Trump incredibly offensive and think it's incredibly unjust that he is the president of the United States of America because he is so obviously flawed and so bombastic and so willing to offend people and not care about it and so willing so greedy he's he's someone who has made a lot of money and in the process there've been all sorts of negative consequences and there's all these personality traits of Donald Trump and most people find it incredibly offensive and unbearable that he is allowed to be president of the United States of America. Would you agree? Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's yeah, absolutely standard. I don't think there's anything to disagree with there. But I, from my point of view, growing up more or less in southern England in the 90s and noughties, I certainly grew up in that kind of polite neoliberal state. So I would have inherited all these kinds of uh, ideas myself. So to, I, th- there are all sorts of things that I dislike about what I see presented about Trump, because obviously I don't know him, I've never met him. Foremost, his fears that gays and Mexicans and Muslims are all threats and is, is sort of like infantilised bullying as a means of getting what he wants, as it's portrayed to me. But certainly when he was elected as president, I found it absolutely abhorrent and I thought it, it just cannot be that someone so awful has managed to get there. Why has the, why has, how has society let this happen? And that's probably how, uh, well, I mean, that's definitely how loads of people felt at the time. It was obvious it, those thoughts were incredibly prolific. But I've since, I mean, I, there's, there's nothing particularly likeable about him. Just as a person, he'd be the last person I'd want to come around for dinner because I would imagine he would sit there constantly draw attention to himself, probably be rude, probably dislike some of the other people that I'd invited and, um, you know, all those things. Why would you want someone like that to come to your dinner party? So there's all sorts of ways in which I find him deeply unpleasant as a person, but I don't find it offensive like I did when he was first elected, the idea that someone like that has got where they are. He um, he represents human flaws and he puts them out there in the world. And we all I, we all have flaws like him. I just think that he doesn't deal with them very well. And I don't think he's, pro- he's probably not a particularly happy person. And I wouldn't copy his 
way of life. Do you have a steam train in your flat at the moment? <laughs> Why? I can hear a very strange sound. Oh, no, it's gone now. It sounded like you had a steam train going through your living room. No, I think it might just have been your brain working overtime there. Oh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I just thought I'd listen. I, um, so we were talking about paranoia. We were talking about, I guess, um, the fear of Brexit um and and the reaction to that fear of brexit you talk about the reaction to donald trump as a leader of the free world uh you were talking about uh, this all in relation to paranoia and i feel like um i lost the thread of the 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 paranoia there but i guess it's it's about it's about being able to accept our own flaws and other people's flaws then uh it's about being able to um be compassionate about it towards ourselves and others and accept that yeah and accept things but i'm I'm just wondering what how how would you want to conclude this episode how do you want to make this like uh (laughs) by by bringing it back to me (laughs) yeah Yeah, well i can't just ditch all aspects of my personality and just be serious and calm and tranquil and a much better human being from now on i'm uh, sure i will continue to enjoy being stupid from time to time. and But where I was getting to with Trump is the idea of accepting that he is not a monster and nor am I. He has flaws and so do I. And um, That was a poem. <laughs> but it seems from all of this, like paranoia is something we can recognise. So, for example, surely if I were like Trump, I'd know it. I'd know if I was a truly awful human being. Um, and that's, that itself is awful verging on being a disease but it usually comforts the person so that's the that was the uh, that was the last big point that i slammed down on the table it's, it's presumably very right, com- yeah. very comforting for donald trump to feel like his greed has made him successful his views are right gays muslims and mexicans truly are the enemy and that and he can justify that by looking at all his followers who reassure his own position. I'm also going to use the example of George W. Bush talking about the war on terrorism when he said that every nation was either with or against America. That's an example of eliminating the isolation of paranoia because the paranoid person is not alone if he establishes moral superiority and amasses followers and... So if you're a powerful person and you've got loads of specifically the majority of people uh, vote you to be their leader, you're very much reassured that your paranoid position is actually the right one and that your fear of other people is actually correct. There are a load of enemies out there to be destroyed. And so the, the quote that we started with, there is for all of us something extraordinarily difficult in recognising the existence of a world around us that is entirely indifferent to our fate and thus paranoid states offer a kind of compensation. If you're paranoid, you're never alone. So you can project onto other people these various problems and these various anxieties, and you can look around at people who agree with you, and you feel, you no longer feel like you're just an irrelevant person with problems. You feel like you're a purposeful person recognising problems in others, and other people are there with you on your side, and together you have a meaningful purpose in life. Ah, you see, I didn't interpret it like that. I interpreted it to mean that if you project what 
you know, unconsciously you know is true about yourself onto lots of other people, well, then you're not the only one with that problem. And therefore, although you don't bring into your conscious mind regularly that you do have that problem, somewhere, somewhere there you know it's true. But also, if all those other people have the problem, then it's not just you. You're not just this monster who, who is rubbish at their job. You're not just this monster who's a twisted homosexual. There's lots of homosexuals. But actually, what you'll do is you'll see that they're disgusting because they're, they're partaking in it. They're, they're, they're doing this. They're displaying this. You can see them do this. Whereas you, you've got it under control, you've got it under wraps. But you're still not alone. But then if you acknowledge someone like me who does not find it perverse and abhorrent to be <laughs> to be homosexual. Uh-huh. Well, I mean that's not a good example. Well, because it is perverse and abhorrent. <laughs> <laughs> no, to see to to comp- to constantly complain about other people as opposed to addressing your own problems and thinking, maybe I do upset people, maybe I am annoying, maybe I do take jokes too far, maybe I do need to address things, maybe I am hyperactive and I'm not in living in the moment. So for anyone who's maybe new to this podcast or coming back to it, one of the big things that changed for me in the, at the end of the second series we did was Dan introduced me to the idea of, or the, the book I was reading by um, Dr. Yalom, introduced me to the idea of of the here and now which we brought up and Dan you gave me a whole load of exercises where I had to count blue things and stuff like that so the idea of being in the moment was something that I'd never thought about and I very quickly became aware that I was that I'd always lived my life in the past and the future I was troubled by the problems of the past and giddily optimistic about the potential of the future and that was totally consuming and I never ever really gave a thought to the moment there were loads of times where I did really fun things that I can barely remember because I was thinking about the next fun thing and other times where life was perfectly fine and I was really really miserable and living my life in a lot of solitude because I was agonizing over things in the past that hadn't gone right in my in my view never ever stopped to count blue things until you introduced me to that idea Oh, it's such a lovely idea of being here now. So you asked me how I wanted to finish this. I want to I want to give myself a bit of a character assassination because it was such fun in our Christmas one when I read out uh, a listener's character assassination about my flaws. And probably to some extent, because I actually requested that, it, that wasn't a sort of rude imposition whereby someone had listened <laughs> whereby someone had listened to an episode and just decided to get it off their chest what, how they thought I'd got it all wrong in life um, I, I specifically asked for that and um, I think that there was an awful lot in it that I can take and I can just calm down and stop being such an awful person. But the example I want to give is um, when I was at school. Because when I finished reading this book, I'll exaggerate slightly, but I slammed it down on the table. I stood up and I thought, <laughs> I thought, wow. And I gave a round of applause to a book on a table. That was just me doing the round of applause. And I looked into the sky and had an epiphany about my childhood. So that's all very dramatic and grandiose. But what I'm getting at is that when I was at school, I've kind of mentioned this a bit before, but I dissociated myself a lot from other kids at school. And there was a person 
who was like a, he was a friend of mine who I thought was very insecure and he got bullied at school and I had the choice of stepping in and defending him and I didn't do that because I thought to step in and defend him would associate me with him and I would therefore start to be bullied myself and so to avoid uh being bullied and to be bullied is usually I mean usually it's idiots who are pointing out things in you that are not necessarily true. So, I don't know, you might be bullied about your weight or whatever, your personality in some way, as if it's a problem, when it's the problem of the bully, not yourself. So that's often the case. But but I felt like if I were to ever be bullied at school, that would be other people perceiving me as, as being flawed, as not being perfect, as not being wonderful, as not being up there on my grandiose pedestal. And that was a concept intolerable to me. And so I couldn't find it within myself to step in and try and save this person. And so you, so that might sound disgusting, but that is something that I did at school. And as a result of all that, I was very self-aware, like I said. I'd been, at this point, I'd been to multiple schools. I'd lived in different countries and all sorts of things had suddenly changed for me in life. And so I didn't really associate with the familiarity of school. It's not like these were friends I'd grown up with. These were just the latest bunch of strangers plonked in front of me. I I was very self-aware and I was very aware of the image that I projected of myself at school. I was very aware of trying to make people think of me as good things, as being funny, as being clever, as being somehow elusively alluring. I didn't want to be... Because the problem I had at school was that, it, that, that what, the currency of my school was sport and music and talent in that way made you popular. And I couldn't catch a ball or play an instrument. So I had to somehow not be bullied on the basis of being useless at the things that were so valued in that school. I had to be the funny one and the clever one. And so I had to maintain that throughout school because if I if that was my identity and if that crumbled, I would just be bullied like the next person and have a miserable life at school. And so I was sort of like PRing myself through school for years and never, ever got bullied. And saying that may sound worse than anything Trump has ever said. James Hall really is a monster. But um, I just think that I was absolutely terrified at the idea that I might not be perfect. I might not be this great. Because we started this whole podcast with that megalomania episode where I was joking about how I felt like I was a megalomaniac when I was younger. But I genuinely thought I was going to do great things in life and that destiny awaited and that whatever I did, I would be the best at it. And the idea of failing was absolutely intolerable to me. And I was lucky in the sense that I got through school with really good grades. I never stressed about exams. I got good results and things. So all the things that, in that sense, were quite easy to to me. But socially, everything was painfully difficult because I was constantly maintaining this facade so that I was never projecting myself as vulnerable or weak and opening myself up to be bullied or disliked. Is that not what most of us do? You know, <laughs> That's usually your conclusion to things that I say. <laughs> you are human, despite appearing like some kind of alien android. No, no Dan, please reassure me that I'm special. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, you're very special, James. You are special because you're just like everyone else. But I, I have found myself feeling quite laid back, relaxed and tolerant later in life because I, didn't, I don't carry the trauma of bullying around with me. But at the same time, I think there was just as Good. much. Good. So th- but I think there's probably just as I'm much trauma. Bad for you. <laughs> I think there's probably just as much trauma in never connecting with other people, never having particularly strong friendships at school, never feeling like I belonged anywhere ever for years and years and years. Uh, and now you find that you belong in the shed at the end of a Frenchman's garden. Yes, and it's just wonderful. And I've got my jam and I've got my baguette and I'm calm and I'm not shouting quite as much and I don't feel like I'm quite as high on a pedestal. In fact, I'm literally on the ground floor. I'm no longer living on the fifth floor, so I don't have that. I don't have the physical... Uh, However, when you go to sleep, apparently you do have a pedestal bed, don't you? <laughs> you my- are... At- Elevated to a lofty perch whereby you recuperate up there, floating above the ground. When I consolidate my day's thoughts into dreams, I am up there in my lofty position, that is correct. So, James, in in order to summarise, because, I I mean... (laughs) I'd probably have to listen to this back to know what the fuck you're talking about for the last, <laughs> like, 20 minutes at least. Um, what we've looked at is this concept of paranoia as described by a psychoanalyst. Um, psychoanalysis is kind of therapy, and and the concepts are lofty, and they're, they're quite um, cognitively challenging for most people. I mean, I've been working with a lot of these concepts for years and have been through therapy myself for eight years, and I still find them really difficult and challenging. But we looked at some extreme ends of paranoia whereby... You might be hospitalised and need medication because you know, you believe something is extreme that everyone is trying to kill you, uh, and that's not true. Or we're looking at um, the the other end, the more common end of the spectrum of paranoia, whereby something we really don't like about ourselves or can't accept about ourselves or don't want to accept about ourselves, so there might even be some conscious awareness of it, we project that onto other people or spot it in other people or mistakenly identify it in other people and we uh, feel justified in being angry or disgusted or appalled or scared or, or, or cautious of that characteristic or that idea in other people. And so that paranoid state allows us to feel better about the thing that we're not able to cope with about ourselves. So paranoia has a range of um, functions almost, or a range of strengths that, with which we would experience it. But you're talking about it in day-to-day terms as being a way of dealing with anxieties. This podcast is hopefully about allowing people to talk about or think about or allowing us to talk to people about anxiety, about sadness, about discomfort about mental health not thinking of it as something that is only relevant to other people who've got a mental disease and go to a psychiatrist with their illness and they are an other who has a problem that needs to be corrected and i don't have that problem everyone has anxiety everyone is paranoid not to an extreme extent it could be totally manageable and you could feel like you're living your life absolutely fine without problem but there is probably some kind of underlying paranoia and it's it's very painful and uncomfortable at first to recognize it but at the end of it you usually come out feeling better and feeling more aware of yourself in a purposeful way and less like you're being driven to do things and more like you're purposefully 
uh, aware of how you live your life and deal with your problems and deal with your internal and external threats and anxieties. So take-home message for the listener would be... I'm asking you, that's like a question, James. I think that was the take-home message that I just delivered, but I've also just had a, a moment. That whole tirade that I gave about when I was at school, the gist of that was meant to be that I never fitted in. I never felt like I fitted in at school. I never empathised. I never made connections with people at school. And that left me with a sort of chip on my shoulder. And the paranoia is that I have always viewed institutions in adult life as being problematic. So instead of me having problems and being unable to form good connections with people at school, being unable to relate to people and so on instead of me having problems I always used to think big institutions are not places that allow someone like me to fit in I'll never you know any any sort of rejection from applying for a job I would always feel like oh that institution is set in its ways and is intolerant to someone like me I'm different to everyone else and they won't let me in the world's not fair it doesn't exist in the world an institution that will welcome me in all institutions are out to get me life's not fair and I think that has I've probably viewed lots of institutions as being the enemy of myself because um what when actually it was what when actually it was within me that there were problems with being able to accept other people and to make connections with other people and listen to other people and be empathetic with other people and all that sort of thing nice nice okay so well the take-home message for the listener is about you that sounds great (laughs) so so this episode on paranoia whereby we're connecting with the listener has has even though we are no longer you know sticking with the original format of private practice which is whereby james hall comes and talks about his issues and his problems and and daniel p brown just tries to listen and reflect a little bit with him (laughs) and then at the end just says but isn't that what everyone is like (laughs) but um (laughs) <laughs> so so that format we're go we we are steering away from that format and now we're doing the james hall reads a book and daniel brown <laughs> listens to what he understands what james understands about that book and it occasionally perhaps interjects but we'll very quickly be pushed to one side to move on with examples from james hall's life about that book any idea what next episode is going to be about how about the one that's right in front of me, hysteria? Hysteria. Say say that word again. You say that word wrong. You say hysteria, I say hysteria. You say wisteria, I say wisteria. No, I don't. <laughs> exactly, it's wisteria and hysteria. Okay. So you want to talk about... I think that's probably a good one for you, hysteria. Was it Anna O.? Is that one of Freud's first patients? Anna, oh, she had some kind of hysterical condition, didn't she? Okay, well, thank you so much to the listener for bearing with us during this uh, uh, first edition of the uh, new format podcast, Private Practice Podcast. You can find us on privatepracticepodcast.net. 
and on iTunes. Brilliant. All right. Thanks very much. It was, it was uh, a great session. Take care. Boys. Uh, Preston from the Ordinary Boys. 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 Okay. So just before we... <laughs> you, hold on. Before we do anything else, you look deeply troubled. What is currently deeply troubling you i don't know it's just that you you prepare like for weeks in advance these podcasts yeah then when we turn on the switch and press go thumbs up i'm looking at you over skype because there you are in your little french bubble of happiness you go you go silent and and then you mumble and and blurmer and 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 and, and what's wrong with you and then you ask me what's wrong with what's what's, what's, You're confused by Private Practice Podcast 2019. Despite a second before us putting the record button on, we agreed that we were relaunching the podcast, and it's 2019. What's the confusion there? And then you ask me what the problem is. I'm staring at what can only be seen to be like an idiot savant who who is completely baffled by something we've agreed on 10 seconds prior to this. (laughs) It's a wonderful story.